This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, worship band. Thank you, Michelle. And we're so, so blessed, not only to have some fantastic musicians, but to have um, them led by a worship leader, team leader who is, uh, without a doubt, led by the Holy Spirit. There's no way you could know some of the random things I've got in my sermon that tap in to the songs that you were led to choose this morning. So that's, that's just amazing. Good to have you all here this morning. Come on in, guys. And Punchy's eager at the front row. It's nice to see you guys. So good morning. Welcome to Hope Church. This is episode 101 of The Promise and the Purpose, our verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Luke. So we're in chapter 15, and we're looking at the parable of the lost coin. Lost coin. I'm glad Howard's here. These are for you, Howard. So recently, a friend of mine uh, lost a couple of fingers on his right hand in an accident. And he went to the doctor and he said, Doctor, doctor, will I ever be able to write with it again? And the doctor said, yes, but I wouldn't count on it. Yes. So the driver of a huge truck lost control and he ploughed through the empty toll booth at the side of the road. He smashed it to pieces. And sometime after the, the driver phoned in to report the damage, he watched a repair truck turn up and all the crew got out and they picked up every broken piece of wreckage and they spread this creamy white substance on it and then began fitting the pieces together as a minty aroma filled the accident scene. Less than half an hour later, the entire toll booth was completely reconstructed and it looked as good as new. That's astonishing, said the truck driver to the man in charge of the repair crew. He said, what was that white stuff you were using to stick it all together again? They said, ah, that was toll gate booth paste. So today's Bible passage is quite short, so I've got room for padding. Um, we've just got three verses. It gives me, a, give, gives me some time to talk about parables more generally. And this is what I've been studying this week, and it's, it's really been a blessing to me. So I hope it's going to be a blessing to you as well. So I guess the first question is, what is a parable? Right, what's a parable? It's a word that we use a lot in church, but not very much outside of church. So what is it? And the best description I've found of a parable is it's a story with intent. It's a story that awakens insight, that pokes your conscience and moves you to take action. Parables were widely used by the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day. But in the hands of Jesus, his parables became a prophetic instrument delivering a message from God into the ears of the people who are listening. Now, you might be thinking that a parable sounds a bit like 
uh, a fable, yeah, like a moral story, like Aesop's fables, maybe. Do you know what I mean when I say Aesop's fables? You've heard of Aesop's fables? Yeah. Aesop's fables, that, 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 that Greek guy that we can't spell, <laughs> right? That, I picked one at random. So here's one of Aesop's fables. It's called The Grasshopper and the Ant. The grasshopper sings and dances all summer long, making fun of the hard-working ant who refuses to join in. Instead, the ant is working hard, storing up food for the winter. When the harsh winter comes, the ant is prepared. He's got food stored away for him and all of his family. But the grasshopper has none. So the grasshopper begs the ant for food, but the ant refuses, telling him to go away and party the winter away. So the moral of that story is obviously don't rely on insects for dinner. Um, <laughs> no, so the moral is you have to work hard to provide for your needs in the future, right? A fable, it teaches a moral point that you can apply, which might sound a bit like a parable, but the parable of Jesus are different. The parables of Jesus are not fables, and they're not allegories either. Now, an allegory is a type of story where many, if not all, of the characters and the plot points convey a kind of hidden meaning. They represent something else. Maybe one of the most famous modern examples is C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the lion Aslan represents Jesus. And Aslan returns to Narnia in order to offer himself as a sacrifice to save the naughty boy Edmund. Right? You may not know and I didn't know this, so this is for you, Lydia and Debbie, um, that The Wizard of Oz is an allegory. Did you know that? Yeah, she did. Can't, can't get anything past Debbie. So, yes, so The Wizard of Oz is actually a political allegory about the America at the start of the 20th century. Oz is an abbreviation for ounce, and the yellow brick road referenced the gold standard, which is much being, much being debated at the time in America. The scarecrow represents the farmers, the tin man, the industrial workers, and the cowardly lion, the political reformers who weren't doing the job they were supposed to be doing. Who knew? Mm -hmm. See, when you know what the characters represent, you see a whole other level of meaning in the story. Which is irrelevant, because the parables of Jesus are not <laughs> allegories. <laughs> but we can lead ourselves into confusion when we treat them as if they were, and we start inventing our own layers of meaning, and putting them on the top. Let me give an example from church history. Saint Augustine, okay, one of the early church farmers, farmers, early church fathers, he lived about 300 years after Jesus. And he started this trend of allegorizing Jesus' parables, which influenced the way the church taught parables for probably a thousand years. So probably one of the best known examples of Augustine's interpretation of the parables is in this way is the story of the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure you all know, and someone's preaching on it next week. Who is it? Who's preaching next week? Is it one of you? Prodigal son, it's prodigal son, isn't it? Yes, right. Okay. Just checking. Um, so the parable of the Good Samaritan, I'm sure you know, it's a man who's traveling, he gets beaten up by robbers, and a priest and a holy man both walk on by, they don't stop to help him, but a Samaritan, who is someone that the Jews really didn't like, he stops and he helps generously. Right, we, we know that story. Well, according to St. Augustine, uh, the meaning of the parable is this. The man is Adam, and he's traveling towards Jerusalem, which is the heavenly city, and in the sky is the moon, which is Jericho, which stands for our mortality. The robbers are the devil and his angels who strip the man of his immortality. 
they beat him by persuading him into sin. And the priest and the Levite that walk on by, they are the priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament. The Good Samaritan is in fact Christ, and the binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. The oil and the wine that are poured upon his wounds are the comfort of hope and encouragement that comes. He's put on a donkey, and that represents the incarnation. And the inn that he's taken to represents the church. And the next day after that, when he, he um, the next day after is the resurrection of Christ. And the innkeeper, well, that's the apostle Paul. Did you know? And the two denarii that are paid to the innkeeper are the two commandments to love, or the promise of this life and that which is to come. It's amazing how much you can find in a parable if you just make stuff up. And that's what we need to be careful that we don't do. The parables of Jesus are not allegories. And we will miss what Jesus intended to teach us if we start putting our own meanings over the top. Now, all of Jesus' parables have a very similar structure. And knowing what to look for helps you focus on those important parts of the parable and not get distracted by the the narrative colour that Jesus added to the story, just to help the story make sense. So I'm now going to share with you a deep and hidden mystery, the structure of Jesus' parables. Are you ready for this? You ready? You ready? Okay. Do you want to know the divine plan and purpose behind every parable so that you can always understand it? Well, grab your books, grab your pens. You'll want to write this down. It's complicated, but I want you to remember it for the future. There are three types of parables. How many? Okay. The first type is there are parables with one character. Secondly, there are parables with two characters. And wait for it. Thirdly, there are parables with how many, Evan? Three characters. Give that guy a degree in divinity. That is right. I know it's a bit complicated, but there are three types of parables Jesus told. Parables about one character. Parables about two characters and parables about three characters. When there is only ever one character, that character represents God. When there are two characters, it usually represents a master and a slave or a father and a son. In other words, an authority figure and someone who is under their authority. And when there are three characters, it's usually a master and two slaves, one good, one bad. A father and two sons, one good and one bad. And focusing on these main characters and not... The narrative colour helps you focus on the meaning that Jesus was trying to convey. Now I can see at the corner of my eye, there's a couple of biblical scholars in the room who are starting to itch in their chairs. And they're saying, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. What about the parable of the talents? Because that's, that was three servants and one master, that makes four people. And I say, aha, aha, I say to you. But it's still the same model because it was a master and two groups of servants. One group good, one group bad. Still three types of characters. But then I hear you say, you say, but then, what about the parable of the sower? That's the parable that Jesus told about parables. The meta parable, if you like. I never met a parable I didn't like. But you can still apply the rule of three and work out who are the main characters. Who are the main characters? Well, you have the sower, which represents God. And then we're looking for two other characters. Who are the two other characters in the parable of the sower? Well, the only other thing where there's two of is the... Soils, isn't it? It's the soils. The good soil and the bad soil. It's the same model. Someone in authority and a good one and a bad one as an example. And so it tells us what are the important parts of the parable that we should focus on. 
So in fact, the parable of the sower is, as it's called in some Bibles, the parable of the soils. It tells us what the important thing is about. The point of the parable is the way people receive the word, whether they let it grow or not. Are you good soil or bad soil? That's the main point that Jesus was making through that parable. So when you look for those main characters, one, two, or three, it helps you find that core meaning that Jesus was trying to convey to the audience. What did he want them to think about? I think one of the reasons why people attempted to look for deeper, hidden, allegorical meanings in Jesus' parables is that actually what he's saying isn't always that obvious. It's because Jesus was using what is known as indirect communication. See, direct communication is when you convey something directly. Um, Direct communication would be something like, we are arranging a sailing trip on the 24th and 25th of March. Speak to Richard Giles if you want to sign up and come along. One space left or we'll get a second boat. See? Direct communication. Indirect communication is when you talk adjacent to things and you make the audience work for what they're trying to discover. Now, teaching, learning is more than just imparting direct communication to people. And you know, we could be resistant if we've been told stuff that we think we already understand. So when Jesus is challenging people's worldviews, stuff that they think they already understand, they think they already understand how God works and how to read the Bible. What Jesus is using with this indirect style of communication, he's sneaking past their defenses and challenging their understanding and their worldview without them really realizing it. And all of Jesus' parables teach a point. And that meaning that Jesus is trying to convey is always found within the context that we find the parable. You know, we say when we try to read the Bible, there's always three C's we need to understand so we can understand this passage. We want to know what's the covenant, what's the context, and what's the comparison. You know, the covenant, that means which phase of God's story are we in when we're reading this part of the Bible? What relationship is in charge between God and man? If we read something in the Old Testament that tells worshippers they must take a sheep to church on Sunday to sacrifice... Well, we understand this doesn't apply to us today. No one brought their sheep with them or their two turtle doves, did they? Why? Because we know that we're now living under a different covenant. So even though there was these rules espoused that we read in the Bible, they don't apply to us today because, as Jesus said at the Last Supper, Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus started a new covenant that changed the way we relate to God. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was that last and perfect sacrifice that wipes away all of our sins once and for all. The sheep are safe. So knowing which covenant is in effect when you read a particular passage of the Bible helps you understand what it's trying to say and how it applies to you or maybe how it doesn't apply to you. The second C, comparison, context, is the key to understanding Jesus' parables. We often read our Bible out of context. Yeah, you might follow a Bible reading plan that jumps around all, every day, another random part of the Bible, another different book. Where a preacher might bring a sermon which is based on a few paragraphs from the middle of a chapter from the middle of a book. But understanding what comes before that passage and understanding what comes after, yeah, knowing its context, helps you understand what is going on in the narrative. What are the ideas that are being explored by the writer that helps you understand and apply what they are trying to say? 
And the final C is comparison. Compare what you think this passage is telling you to what the rest of the Bible says. Yeah, scripture does not contradict itself. So if you think you know what this Bible passage is saying, find a second opinion, right? Read it, find another second opinion in another part of the Bible. Find another part of the Bible that teaches the same thing. And if you can't find another part of the Bible that teaches the same thing, well, you should be suspicious that you've misunderstood the point of what you're trying to read. So how do we apply all of these things to Jesus' parable? So we can understand what he's trying to get at in his indirect style of communication. As I said, context is really important. When you read a parable, look at what happened just before. Why did Jesus tell this story to these people at this time? What did he notice they don't get that he's trying to correct their understanding? Yeah, who is there? Who is in the crowd? And we get clues from, for today's passage from the introduction to the chapter that Luke gave us. Luke 15 verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So the context is, the religious rulers of the day are complaining that Jesus is mixing with sinners and socializing with them and eating meals with them. Yeah, that's the kind of the immediate context. But there's, there's a second context that applies to all of Jesus' parables. This kind of super context or meta context is always there, and it's this. All of Jesus' parables are about the kingdom of God that he's ushering in as the Messiah. They are all there to explain the kingdom of God and how it works. That's not to say we can't also find some moral teachings in there and examples of the way that we should behave and all that kind of stuff. Jesus is a clever guy. He puts multiple layers in his parables. But the main meaning, the core meaning that is always there is about Jesus and the kingdom of God. That's what all the parables are about. Yeah, Jesus didn't put his parables in there to teach us esoteric points of systematic theology. They are there to teach us something about Jesus. And that is revealed in the context of when and where and how Jesus told his parable. So with all that stuff tucked away, let's look at today's passage, the parable of the lost coin. The last week, Lydia shared a, a brilliant message on the parable of the lost sheep. You can go watch the, the replay on our website if you missed it. But a quick reminder of that, because it's part of our context. The religious folk were getting upset that Jesus was attracting the kind of crowd that would not be welcome in the temple on the Sabbath. You know, all kinds of sinners, undesirables, you know, people like you. So Jesus, Jesus tells this parable of the lost sheep, saying, look, wouldn't you leave your flock of sheep to go looking for one who was lost and celebrate when you find it? And he ends by saying, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven when one sinner who re repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need for repentance. So then he goes on, Luke 15, verse 8. This is today's passage. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together all her friends and her neighbors, and she says, rejoice with me, I found my coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, says Jesus, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And a sneak peek for next week, the parable of the prodigal son, is a story also of one son who went away and was lost and then came home and was found. 
Luke chapter 15 is sometimes called the lost chapter, as it contains these three parables, all about things that were lost, and then they were found. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. So what is Jesus trying to teach the audience, the crowd, about the kingdom of God through these parables? Context is king. What happened just before Jesus told his parables? The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Jesus is attracting a different kind of crowd. Not religious people, not holy people, not upstanding members of society, but people with a reputation, people with a bad reputation, people who get stared at in the marketplace, people who get whispered about when they walk down the street, people who you can see are breaking all of the Ten Commandments every day. Not nice people. Not the kind of people you want sitting next to you in the temple on Sabbath. In fact, you don't even want them coming into the temple. The rabbis taught that a good Jewish person wouldn't even mix with sinners, certainly wouldn't socialize with them and definitely wouldn't sit down and eat with them. Do you recall a few weeks ago, Steve preached a brilliant sermon about the great banquet, which is another parable. And one of the points he brought out was that who you sat to eat with was the sure sign of your social status in Jesus' day. And here was Jesus sitting with the lowest of the low. Someone who called himself a holy man. He's supposed to live his life as an example to others, sharing a meal with the lowest of the low. So, of course, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus, he just turns on them, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, those upstanding members of the community, and he says, hold on, hold on. This segregation thing you've got going on is not how God's kingdom operates. It's not us and them. It's not the holy huddle over here and the dirty sinners kept outside the gates. If you think your fancy robes and your long prayers make God pleased with you, you're wrong. You think the fact that you memorized the whole scroll of Isaiah makes God happy. You're not correct. Let me tell you what makes God happy. Let me tell you where God's diligent attention is focused. What is Father God persistently doing and not giving up? It's it's like a woman who lost a day's worth of wages. She looks for it. She sweeps her house. She moves the furniture around. She picks up the carpet. She looks under it. She lights her lamps, burning precious oil to search day and night until she finds it. When she finds that one that was lost, she goes and tells everyone, look, I found it. Don't you see? It's not the nine that she already had that made the woman celebrate. It was the return of the lost one that got her excited. Says Jesus, don't you see that when I spend time with the sinners and the outcasts, it's because they are the lost ones. And I am doing the work of the kingdom to find those lost ones and bring them home. He says, verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I realize this week, I've been misreading this parable my entire life. If you'd asked me last week, I would have told you that it's the angels who celebrate when one sinner repents. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, there is joy before the angels of God. The King James translation says, there is joy in the presence of the angels. It's not the angels who are celebrating when the sinner comes home to God. 
It's the person who the angels who are with that is celebrating. And who are the angels with in heaven? It's Father God. It's Father God who celebrates. So stop your grumbling, says Jesus. God in heaven celebrates what I'm doing. The kingdom of heaven is not an exclusive club, and I'm inviting everyone in that I can find. There is no one so lost that they are not welcome in God's kingdom. There is nothing that you have done that excludes you from God's kingdom. Early mornings at the moment when I'm up with the puppy, I'm re-watching my way through the West Wing. One of the best TV shows ever made. And one of the dilemmas they seem to try and solve every couple of weeks is they're trying to get Congress to approve some political appointment that the president wants to make. Uh, but they keep on finding that so-and-so would make a brilliant judge. But 30 years ago, when they were a young and silly student, they did something or said something controversial, which now, 30 years later, disqualifies them from holding office. Isn't it great that is not how the kingdom of God operates? It doesn't matter what you did in your past. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. The only thing that matters to God is what you do today. And if today you say that stuff in the past is not who I want to be anymore, I want to live differently, that change of heart, that change of direction is what the word repentance means. And every time one person decides, from today onwards, I want to live God's way, not my way, it causes God to jump off of his throne in heavens and dance before the angels. So if that's you today, if you want to make the king of all creation, get up and dance. He will welcome you into his kingdom. All you have to do is believe what Jesus said. Who he said he was. And decide that he will be your Lord. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's no more complicated than that. There's no ritual, there's no formula, there's no fence to climb. If you make that decision today, where and whenever today is for you, whether it's today or a year from now watching a replay, please speak to us. Ping an email to info at thehope.church. We'd love to pray with you and for you and send you the gift of a Bible. Now, as I conclude, as the worship band come and get ready, when it comes to understanding God's, what God is saying through the parables, understand the context. See who those key characters are and know that they are always about the kingdom of God. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Let's finish the song of worship.